Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify, and you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform, a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their rights to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. This episode's topic, James Garfield, the last Lincoln Republican? If he is known at all, it is as one of the four presidents to have been successfully assassinated, or perhaps as one of the bearded men from Ohio entering the White House during the Gilded Age ostensibly worthy of no further notice. But a closer look at the career and ideology of James Garfield reveals a man who had far more potential than simply as a Republican placeholder. What was that ideology? And how did his career and struggle for the presidency shape who he was and what he could have been for Gilded Age America and especially Black Americans? With me today to discuss these issues and more is Dr. Todd Arrington, site manager for the James Garfield National Historical Site and author of The Last Lincoln Republican, Presidential Election of 1880. Todd, welcome. Hey, Avi, thanks for having me on today. Excited to be here and, and appreciate your uh, interest in James Garfield. Pleasure's all mine. So let's start with a, an, an introduction uh, for our listeners. Who was James Garfield before he entered political life? Yeah, great question. So James Garfield is a, is a son of uh, the Western Reserve of Ohio. Uh, that's this sort of area here in, in Northeast Ohio. I'm coming to you today from about oh, probably 30, 35 minutes or so from downtown Cleveland. So up here in the, the northeastern corner of the state. And this part of, uh, of what's now Ohio was uh, part of the Connecticut Western Reserve, these Western Reserve lands that were given to uh, some of the original states after the Revolutionary War. Um, so James Garfield is a guy who is spends really the, the bulk of his life when he's not in the army, of course, or when he's not in Washington. But the bulk of his life is really concentrated here in, in Northeast Ohio. Uh, he's born here. He lives here for much of his life, um, including, you know, a lot of the time that he's in Congress, including 1880 when he's running for president. And of course, he expected to come back to this part of Ohio as well after his presidency, had that presidency been you know, four years, eight years, whatever. Um, as you noted at the top, you know, he was unfortunately one of the assassinated presidents. So he never did get to come back here and his presidency is very brief. But, you know, he's a guy who grows up very poor. Um, you know, he's literally the last president born in a log cabin. That is actually true. Um, he uh, his father dies when he's less than two years old. So he grows up uh, in a, you know, what we would call today a, a single parent household with a single mother trying to raise four children. He's the youngest of four. Um, but he also is somebody that his mother recognizes very early on has, you know, incredible intellectual capacity. Uh, and she decides uh, after, you know, a series of of other things that he tries to do that education, he you know, education is, is the future for him. And so she spends 
what little money she has to send him to school. And that's where he kind of becomes who he was meant to be. He, he really, uh, latches on to, to, to study and to work and to, and to learning. And that's something that was important to him really until the day he died. He became an academic, he became a scholar, he became a, 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 a the president of a, what's now a, a four-year liberal arts college here in Northeast Ohio. Um, uh, but he also was somebody that that later on began to care very deeply about political issues uh, and was very, very vocally anti-slavery, really from a fairly early age. Um, I won't say from birth because uh, he was uh, he belonged to a uh, the Disciples of Christ, which was a denomination that at that time didn't think that uh, Christians should be in, involved in politics. And Garfield agreed with that for a time and then later kind of came to see that that the political process was a way to um to to you know to not only be involved but also to right some of the the wrongs that that he saw so again he's somebody who lived really ultimately a very short time he was only 49 when he died but he packed a lot into a into a you know what ultimately today we we think of as a pretty short life that is indeed quite a, a quite a lot packed into it um in addition to his significant uh, war experience which you mentioned in the book i I, I wanted to ask if you could perhaps elaborate on the time he spent in the House of Representatives, because that was the that was really the the furnace in which his political alliances uh, and ideas were forged. Uh, he served under four presidents, uh, I believe, in the House of Representatives, uh, and he worked with quite a number of powerful, uh, and perhaps slippery people. Uh, you have people like James G. Blaine. Uh, you have uh, you have some people who would later become stars like Thomas Brackett Reed. So what 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 kind of a legislator, what kind of a congressman was James Garfield uh, in terms of how he operated, how he acted, how he tried to work with his colleagues? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, Garfield is someone who, of course, when the Civil War comes, he is very uh, adamant that you know, slavery is the root cause of the war. And he says this in a literally in a letter he writes two days after the attack on Fort Sumter. Uh, he eventually go decides that he he needs to serve. And so he goes into the Union Army uh, and he serves in the Union Army until the very end of 1863. In the fall of 1862, uh, Republicans here in Northeast Ohio decided that um, he would be a fine candidate for Congress for the House of Representatives. Uh, they, of course, wrote him about this. And he basically said, look, I'm, you know, if you want to put my name forward, go ahead. But I'm obviously not going to be there to campaign. You know, if, if people want to elect me, that's fine. But um, that's up to them. Uh, and so he gets elected to Congress while he's, you know, in the field with the Union Army. Um, he's elected in the fall of 1862. But that next Congress doesn't take its seat until the end of 1863. So he really has a year left to serve in the army, which he does. Uh, he goes to Congress um, as somebody who, you know, and, and one of the reasons that he was uh, wanted in Congress so much was because he did have that military experience and he did know what the army was facing and, and what it needed and what soldiers thought. And uh, at one point during, while he was still in the army, he was, uh, he, he was on sort of a, an extended stay in Washington, D.C., waiting for orders, you know, serving on a court martial, just basically kind of hanging around waiting for his next assignment. And at one point he did get an audience with Abraham Lincoln uh, and and sort of told Lincoln, you know, I've been elected to Congress and, and I'm not sure if I should go to Congress or if I should stay in the army. And Lincoln implores Garfield to go to Congress because, of course, you know, he has generals 
you know, coming out of his ears, but he doesn't have enough in his mind, in Lincoln's mind, enough reliable Republican votes in Congress. So Garfield says, and he writes this letter where he says, you know, he's going to the army, even though, or rather he's going to Congress, even though he thinks he would rather stay in the army. But since the president has asked me to go to Congress, I don't feel I should um, consult my own preference here. So he goes to Congress and, you know, Garfield is a very interesting guy. I, I think it's important to remember, um, first of all, he is a he is a politician and he was very, very astute at kind of reading the public mood and sometimes making his views match that, um, as, as you would expect from any elected official, you know, kind of paying attention to what the people are saying and, and trying to, to, to be in line with, with what people are saying. Um, so at various times in that long congressional career that you mentioned, which ended up being 17 years he spent in the House, uh, he was a radical Republican. He, on some issues, was more conservative. Uh, he kind of, he kind of, you know, depending on the issue and depending on the time, really kind of went with the flow to some degree. Uh, some historians have have said that, you know, to them that indicates he didn't really have any principles. I, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think he did have principles, and there were some very core issues that that really were very, very near and dear to his heart, civil rights being one of those. Um, he was a hard money advocate. That was something else that he was always consistent with. Um, he was always very, very interested in and concerned about education. Again, as I said already, he, you know, he was an academic for, for a long time. Uh, in fact, it was James Garfield as a congressman who proposed the first ever Federal Bureau of Education. Um, and so there are some things that he was very, you know, for the most part, consistent about. He did work with a lot of different people. He did work, you know, he was pretty good at working with Democrats when when he needed to. Um, you know, he he talks a lot in, in some of his diary entries about, um, you know, battling all day on the floor of the house with, with opponents and then, you know, going to dinner with them at night. Uh, and so, you know, he was this sort of, you know, he had this really outgoing personality, very sort of affable guy. Um, and, you know, he, he said at one point that he, he was, he called himself a poor hater, meaning he wasn't really, he couldn't hold grudges for very long because he just liked people. And, um, and I think these are some of the things that in 1880 made the Republican party look at him as, especially when they got to that Chicago convention and it was, you know, kind of, they were kind of stuck without a, uh, a candidate. I think some of those things uh, were, you know, the, some of the principles that he had been espousing for years, but also the fact that even people who opposed him politically liked him personally. I think some of these are some of the things that really made him a, a an acceptable compromise candidate for the Republicans in 1880 to run for president. That's a great summary. Uh, if we're already on, if we're in the subject of 1880, um, you just, you described in great detail about uh, the, the convention fight between uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who's looking for a third term, uh, James G. Blaine and a couple of others and Garfield, who ends up because of all the deadlocks and the and political intrigue ends up becoming the dark horse candidate. Uh, I wanted to ask, though, a bit more about um, Garfield's relationship with Grant himself, because he was a congressman under Grant, and Grant, uh, for all his faults, we uh, people are starting to acknowledge this more and more, was serious in trying to ensure civil rights, was serious in trying to uh, you know break the Ku Klux Klan and stuff like that. 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, his administration was seriously corrupt. I wanted, what did Garfield himself think about Grant while he was a congressman and during and I guess after uh, the convention fight? Well, yeah, you're right in that, you know, Garfield was in the House of Representatives for the entire eight years of Grant's presidency. Grant and Garfield certainly knew each other, worked together on some things. They didn't have a particularly close personal relationship. Um, you know, Garfield uh, on occasion was sort of critical of Grant in his in his diaries or in his letters. Grant the same about Garfield. Um, but I, you know, Garfield, as I said, you know, kind of swung a little bit here and there on some issues. Um, but he, so he did certainly support and admire Grant for the most part for, for Grant's uh, insistence on civil rights for formerly enslaved people in the South. Um, and even though they weren't, again, as I said, all that close personally, in 1876, when you get to, you know, the disputed Hayes-Tilden election, um, that, of course, Tilden wins the popular vote, but um, there are questions about the 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 electorate the, the the legitimacy of the votes in South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida, um, and the and both parties start sending observers to these states to monitor the the recounts. If you can sort of think back to two thousand when we had all of these you know the big Florida recount going on and and all of the observers and all the the, the lawyers and everything for both parties that were there, it was a similar situation here in eighteen seventy six. Uh, Grant did actually ask Garfield to go to Louisiana as one of those observers. And so, you know, Garfield kind of didn't really want to go, but he certainly wanted to to make sure that Hayes won the, 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 won the vote in Louisiana and was going to be president. That's something else to keep in mind about Garfield is that he could, when the occasion required it, be exceedingly partisan. Uh, and in this case, in 1876, Garfield was adamant that the most dangerous thing the country could do right now would be to turn the national government back over to the Democrats. You know, Garfield wasn't above waving the bloody shirt when he needed to. You know, Democrats were the party of treason and secession and slavery, um, the party that tried to, to break the union apart. Uh, Grant, of course, was was revered as not only the man who saved the union from the Confederacy by defeating Robert E. Lee, even though that, of course, we all know that wasn't actually the end of the war, but certainly bringing it about more rapidly. Um, Grant also, of course, is revered as 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 a president who has tried to do a lot, as you mentioned it, uh, earlier, about civil rights. And Garfield certainly admired that and, and for the most part agreed with that. So he did agree to go to um, at Grant's insistence to go to Louisiana uh, in 1876 to be one of those election observers. And of course, you know, Garfield got there with in, in his mind that, of course, Hayes is going to win because, you know, again, he didn't want to see the government uh, put back into the hands of of Democrats. And so Garfield goes and and fulfills this role um, and then, you know, comes back to Washington, reports to Grant that you know, there's all this corruption on the Democratic side. There's all this intimidation of African-American voters. Um, and that, of course, you know, Hayes is the rightful winner of these the popular votes in these states and therefore the electoral votes and he should be president. And then when they eventually when the, 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 the Electoral Commission is eventually created to determine who, in fact, won this election, will be the next president. 
Garfield actually ended up being one of the 15 members of that commission. So by being part of that commission, uh, by, you know, fighting to make sure that Hayes became president and not Tilden, uh, Garfield somewhat inadvertently, uh, you know, unbeknownst to him, of course, at the time, established this kind of the scenario by which he himself could be nominated in 1880 because Hayes had said during his own campaign that he wouldn't seek a second term if he won. So the Republicans already knew in 1880 they were going to need somebody else. But anyway, so, so you know, Gar as I said, uh, Grant and Garfield, um, not all that close personally, um, but worked fairly well together on a number of things. That, of course, all changed in, in 1880 uh, with the Republican National Convention. And then after the convention and during Garfield's brief presidency, uh, the relationship with Grant kind of uh, disintegrated, I guess you would say. Okay. Uh, speaking of the question of, uh, of different relationships, uh, you mentioned often in the book that Garfield was concerned that the Republicans were at a sort of a hinge point that for the past decade and a half or maybe more had been the party of reconstruction, had been the party of civil rights, had been the party of free men, uh, free soil and so forth. And we're starting to move more towards being more pro big business, pro big industry and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I was a little bit, uh, I want to ask because First of all, the Republican Party grew out of the Whig Party, which was always known as the big money, big industry party. And they continued that policy. They passed quite a number of laws during the war that encouraged that. And even during Grant's time, who no one, no one says he wasn't pro-civil rights, Mark Twain published The Gilded Age in 1873, right? Not 18, like 85. So it seems to me that, it, was he concerned that they were saying, it's not that we're going to be, it's not that we, we weren't pro big, big business before, it's that now we want to be more exclusively pro big business? Yeah, I, I think that's a good, a good summary of it. it. You know, Garfield was certainly, you know, he, he was an, uh, an early adopter, uh, I guess you would say, of, of the Republican Party. Um, he believed very much in a lot of those old Whig principles, because uh, as you as you note, the the Republicans grew out of, of the Whig Party. You know, Lincoln himself was a Whig, uh, and you know, revered Henry Clay. And you know, Lincoln himself waited, you know, what a year or a year and a half, really, before finally casting his lot with the Republicans, because he was hopeful that the Whig Party was going to be able to sort of make a resurgence, which obviously it did not. So, you know, Garfield wasn't so concerned about the idea of Republicans being allied with financiers or industrialists. He just didn't want that at the expense of civil rights. And so and, and the, one of the points that I try to emphasize in the book to, you know, I guess people can read it and de determine if I've been successful, but um, is simply that. Garfield was one of the few really sort of national Republicans with a with a national reputation at that point who was still saying that the party had a lot of work to do on civil rights. Um, and so I think in Garfield's mind, I think what he didn't want to see was the party go so far into the lane of big business that it just kind of forgot about uh, formerly enslaved people. And certainly there were a number of Republicans, even former radical Republicans by 1880, 
who were saying, uh, you know, these, these same issues, we've been dealing with them for so long. Um, we're ready to move on to other things. We've, you know, we've fought the Civil War. We've passed uh, and ratified the Reconstruction Amendments. Um, we've done everything we can to, you know, to to take black people out of slavery and, uh, you know, give them elite men at least citizenship and 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 votes, uh, the franchise. So it's time to move on to, to bigger and better things. And so I think, you know, Garfield's concern was just that the party not abandon uh, black men and women, black voters in the South. Um, you know, there was a political consideration there. Obviously, he wanted uh, African-Americans to continue to vote Republican, of course. But I think he, he had some genuinely strong feelings that the Republicans came about as a party that was dedicated to the idea of equality, uh, social equality to some degree, economic equality or at least equality of opportunity, and even to some degree, racial equality. Yes, there were plenty of Republicans that didn't care at all about slavery. Um, they cared a lot about the idea that slavery not be allowed to expand uh, into the Western territories. Um, but they also, you know, I mean, it's very famously known that, of course, you know, Lincoln and a lot of the early Republicans said there was no constitutional means for them to 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 get rid of slavery in the states where it already existed, but there was a constitutional means for them to keep it out of the territories. So these are the early ideas of the Republican Party, along with some of those Whig ideas like, you know, the old internal improvements uh, dur during the Civil War, the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railway Act, the Morrill Land-Grant College Act, uh, the, the National Banking Act, a, a lot of these things that came about uh, during the war that were you know, really critical to the war effort, but also kind of start, you know, laid the groundwork for that vision of where the Republicans wanted the, the, the country to go even after the war. And Garfield was was on board with 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 most of that. But I think his fear was that the party was starting to sort of move too quickly past uh, the formerly enslaved people, and he didn't want that to happen. He felt like the party still had a responsibility and a lot of work to do to the point where when he finally, when he does become president and he gives his inaugural address, about a third of that is, is dedicated to civil rights, talking about civil rights. And um, I learned not too long ago um, <laughs> from someone who was a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton <laughs> that... Um, who who had helped President Clinton prepare one of his inaugural addresses? I don't recall which one. That um, Garf, you know, and he had he had read all these inaugurals in preparation to help President Clinton write this address. Um, that no Garfield said more about civil rights in 1880 than anybody said again about civil rights in their inaugural until Lyndon Johnson in 1965. So that's almost you know that's almost you know 80 years there of history where. You know, Garfield is is sort of drawing this line in the sand about civil rights, and nobody does that so strongly uh, in an inaugural address again until Lyndon Johnson. So I think that's telling as well. That's pretty amazing. Um, so if I may play somewhat devil's advocate here, and I say this as someone who is entirely on board with Garfield morally and, and constitutionally, Amer the, the, slavery had been abolished after a very bloody war. Uh, the Union government uh, had tried Reconstruction, including military occupation uh, and all sorts of strict laws. They passed constitutional amendments. They passed a form of a federal civil rights law. Um, 
but by Garfield's time, it wasn't just the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party was predominant until like 1874 or 75, when America, America started becoming a very, very closely divided country, right? You yourself describe in your book how many states hinged on a couple of thousand votes. It was no longer the curb stomping that uh, Grant gave Horace Greeley back in the day. Um, and given that, and given the mood of the country, and given that even though Garfield won the United Government, it was very close knit, the, the people might say, look, we tried military occupation, we tried constitutional amendments, we tried laws. We have all those things on the books. What exactly did Garfield propose to do that those things could not succeed in doing, or or only partially succeed in doing? Well, I mean, that's a great question, and I think that's one of those things that unfortunately gets lost because Garfield served so briefly as president. Right. Um, you know, uh, when you talk about an inaugural address, which I talked about a second ago, and Garfield, you know, dedicating a third of that to discussing discussing civil rights, you don't generally see a ton of really specific policy proposals in an inaugural. An inaugural is there to kind of, you know, inspire and, and hopefully draw people together and, and, and all this. So, so you don't expect to see a lot of policy proposals. So, you know, Garfield was, was, had not gotten to the point where he was saying, you know, here are the five legislative priorities I want Congress to really focus on uh, in the next session to help get us further down the road on civil rights. Um, you know, he, he, as I said, he, you know, he made this inaugural and, and then his entire presidency really has n very little, nothing really to do with civil rights because it is so brief and because he gets totally wrapped up in this, in this squabble with Roscoe Conkling, the, who's the Senate senior Senator from New York about civil service reform, which is something else that was kind of dividing the party and, 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 making factionalism uh, such a such a force in the party at that time, you know, the stalwarts and the half-breeds and all this kind of stuff, when in reality, they really, the stalwarts and the half-breeds were really not that far apart on much, just a couple of, of things, one of them being the entertaining the idea of civil service reform, which stalwarts opposed and, and half-breeds, some of them liked, and, and some of them, frankly, didn't care all that much. But um, so, yeah, it, it, I mean, you, so your question is a great one, and there's really no answer to it simply because Garfield didn't live long, long enough to to um, really make any specific policy proposals or, or proposals to to change. Um, again, I, I think that maybe he would have. This is all speculation, though. And, 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 you know, my view on Garfield is simply that there was a lot of potential there that was lost when he died. And if you look at the things that he said and the things that he wrote and even the things that he did over the course of his political life, certainly the, the potential for a really good presidency is there, a strong and important and impactful presidency. Uh, but I think knowing how he felt about civil rights, it's, it's, it, it's not too far a leap to say that he may have been able to do some good in that arena had he lived. But when you only get to serve four months before you're shot and 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 you know even the assassination is is kind of rooted in the argument about civil service reform not civil rights so you know i i i am always talking about garfield and civil rights 
And I've had so many people ask me, oh, well, is that why he was assassinated? Was he shot by somebody who didn't like what he had to say about civil rights? And I say, no, in fact, the guy who shot him claimed to be a Republican, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and it was really more about that civil service reform issue, not civil rights. So what Mike Garfield had done as president for four years or eight years or however long, don't know. Um, I'd like to think that he maybe would have been able to do some good in the, in the civil rights arena, but it's impossible to say. I mean, who knows what direction the country would have gone? Who knows um, what other priorities might have come up or what national emergencies? Who knows? Um, but back to you know, your, your, your mention of how divided the country was, that, that's exactly right. It was getting more and more divided. Uh, as as we got to 1880, and I, I think I even make the point in the book that 1880 is really the first instance of the solid South. You know, those of us that are this age tend to think of, or, or that are you know historians who study politics, tends to think of the solid South as a more recent phenomenon, and and, and we think of it as solidly Republican, um, in large part because of some of the the later civil rights actions by people like Lyndon Johnson. Um, but in fact, the South was solidly Democratic in 1884, Winfield Scott Hancock, who was the guy Garfield ran against in 1880. Uh, Garfield wins that popular vote by something less than 10,000 votes. So, I mean, as you as you mentioned, the, the, the margin of victory for James Garfield is minuscule. Um, and that speaks to how divided the country was. And the other thing is that in 18, you know, we have if you take five presidential elections, 1876, 1880, 1884, 1888, 1892, the Republicans win the popular vote one time in those five elections. And that's 1880 with Garfield when they win it by, you know, the skin of their teeth. So um, the, the Democrats were certainly ascending at that point. Um, and, you know, the other thing Garfield couldn't do in 1880 was he couldn't wave the bloody shirt in his presidential campaign because he was running against Winfield Scott Hancock, who had who was a West Point graduate, who had a very distinguished and long military career that was still going on in 1880, who had fought and bled and nearly died for the Union during the Civil War. So, you know, Garfield uh, couldn't do what a lot of his his uh, predecessors uh, could do and successors, too, could do. Uh, when running for president, which was remind voters that the person running against me is a Democrat and the Democrats were the party of treason and secession and and slavery and all this. So um, anyway, what what would Garfield have done as president on civil rights? It's hard to say because, again, he just serves so briefly. But um, a lot of things had already been tried. Uh, you're right that, you know, Garfield had been on board with a lot of those things and some of them had worked and some of them hadn't. Um, but I still think it's telling that, um, you know, the one really major campaign speech that he gave in 1880 when he was running was about civil rights. And that was the, the famous uh, what they call the boys in blue speech that 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 he made in uh, in New York City in in August of 1880. And then he also talked a lot about civil rights in the inaugural addresses I've already mentioned. So I think those things are telling and it is a good reason to believe he would have been a good civil rights president. But Again, it's all speculation because he died so so soon after becoming president. Fair enough. Um, if I may ask, though, um, his success, his Republican successor in the White House after Grover Cleveland served for one term, Benjamin Harrison, also got fairly got got united government by the skin of his teeth, 
And he also tried to push forward uh, really the last attempt to push forward a voting rights bill until like after World War II. Uh, so perhaps it, would you say that Garfield is the last Lincoln Republican and Harrison is an epilogue? Or, I mean, how, how would you place the, the, the Harrison attempt? Because it was a serious attempt. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I've, I've actually, people have brought this up to me before. Oh, well, you know, what about Benjamin Harrison? And, you know, Harrison and Garfield are, you know, very close to the same age. I think, you know, Garfield's maybe two years older or something like that. They knew each other. Garfield liked Harrison. I mean, he even says in his in his diary that, you know, during the campaign, he's he's talking to Harrison and he likes Harrison. And he talks about at one point uh, the possibility of maybe bringing Harrison into his cabinet, uh, because, of course, remember, at this point, uh, presidents were always trying to sort of appease different states and different regions of the country. And so he was thinking, if I need to if I have to have somebody from Indiana in my uh, in my cabinet, maybe Harrison would be a good choice. And Harrison was like a little lukewarm to that because he thought maybe he'd be better off staying in the Senate, which I guess you could say Harrison was probably right because he ends up being elected president later. Um, so, the, yeah, it, it's a it's a good question. It's a legitimate question. Was maybe Harrison the last Lincoln Republican uh, and not Garfield? And by last Lincoln Republican, I guess I should say that what I mean by that is simply somebody who was really dedicated to uh, the original version of the Republican Party as that party that I talked about already that was really founded on on the ideas of equality of opportunity for for people, even to some degree racial equality, certainly opposed to the expansion of slavery. Um, that's what I mean when I say the last Lincoln Republican, although I will admit I have been uh, sort of uh, good-naturedly accused of 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 just using that term because if you put the, if you put Lincoln's name in the title of a book, of course hmm. it'll sell. Uh, <laughs> but I can assure you that hasn't you know hasn't done much for for sales of this book. But uh, anyway, um, so the yeah, the question about Harrison is a good one, and as I said, it's one I've had before. the The reason that I I really give that title to Garfield more than Harrison, and this is also something that you could consider kind of. Uh, you know, a, a case of circumstance because Garfield served so briefly and because he didn't have a chance to do a whole lot is while Harrison did try to put forward that that, you know, some civil rights uh, proposals and, and that that um, that voting rights that you mentioned a minute ago, Harrison also has some uh, extremely negative uh interactions and and impacts on american indians uh and again garfield maybe would have had some of those too had he lived so harrison is is for me is is problematic as the last lincoln republican just because um he, while he was trying to do the right thing for, on civil rights for african americans um he was not quite as interested in doing the same thing for for american indians um, Garfield had had some, you know, some, some things in his congressional career where, you know, had, had, you know, said some things that were frankly, fairly commonly, you know, commonly used terms for, you know, American Indians during that time, whether it's savages or some other, you know, term that we certainly think of today as being racist. Um, but, but as president, 
Garfield really didn't have any interactions at all with American Indians simply because, again, the presidency is so brief. So that to me is why, you know, I'm I mean, I hate to say it, but maybe Garfield looks almost looks better in hindsight because he died so so soon after becoming president because he died so young. He, he didn't have time to do a whole lot as president, at least, that that um, historians could really kind of parse later and say, oh, this was really good, but this was really terrible. And, and this had a negative impact on this group of people or whatever. So so anyway, that's that's kind of why I um, th- that's why I I give Garfield the title of the last Lincoln Republican rather than Harrison. But I have had that question before. And, and certainly you could make an argument for Harrison there as well. Fair enough. Uh, I'm a little curious. Uh, you mentioned how he wanted to have a federal bureau of education. He was obviously very committed to education. What exactly? Okay, maybe not what exactly. What was his general view of what the federal government should do in education? Because there, there was and still is an enormous amount of debate on the subject. Sure. Yeah, and and of course it's 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 interesting to note that you know Garfield in, it proposes this federal bureau of education in 1866 as you know, an, uh, a bureau of the federal government that would, you know, keep educational statistics, um, but would also, you know, theoretically at least be a resource for for education, would be able to funnel money towards education, uh, would be able to help, you know, just make some things available that would help improve uh, education and make education more available for more people. Um but of course, now we have a Department of Education, which came about in, I don't know what, the 1970s, maybe something like that, I think. Um, so, you know, 100 years or so after Garfield. Uh, and of course, the Department of Education is one of those departments that very often gets kind of wrapped up in in the debate about, is the government too big? Is this a role that the government really should have? Or should this be more local control? Should states control education rather than the federal government? So, you know, you've got the old uh, you know, the conversation that is always ongoing about federal authority versus state authority. Um, so, you know, Garfield, but Garfield did, you know, he, he, he deeply cared about education. Um, he, he wanted everybody that, that could get an education to get one. And he really had, you know, he was, he had a classical education and, and he spoke several different languages and, you know, he, he was very well skilled in the, in mathematics and sciences and all this stuff. And, you know, he really had a that sort of he genuinely viewed uh, education from a somewhat idealistic perspective that this is how people improve themselves. Uh, and that extended to, to formerly enslaved people, too. You know, he was concerned about about um, education for 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 black people. He was at one point on the uh, on the board of the Hampton Institute, which was a, an African-American school in in uh, in Virginia. Um, so he, he genuinely, as I said, I think his view was somewhat idealistic. It's, it's what we all want education to be the idea that it's, it's there for everyone. And it's something that we can all attain. Uh, we can all use to, to not only make ourselves more well-rounded people, uh, and open up opportunities for ourselves, but also to get where we want to go in life. Uh, and this was, you know, Garf. So again, Garfield's view is is somewhat idealistic about education, and so, uh, but he felt like, you know, th- this goes back to Garfield's belief in that early Republican view of a somewhat active and activist federal government, um, 
you know, doing what it can to improve the lives of citizens. And in this case, that meant, you know, making education as, as widely available as possible. Again, a lot of that stuff still today, you know, in 2023, we're, we're talking about debating. People have different views on it. That's all fine. But, um, you know, this was something that Garfield was, was very serious about to the point that um, with his own children, when they would, when they would, you know, sit down in the evenings for dinner when he was home, which, of course, he traveled a lot as a sitting congressman and somebody who was very in demand as a speaker and all this kind of thing. Um, but when he would sit down uh, and, and, and have dinner with his children, you know, he would bring books to the table and they would, they would recite Shakespeare while they read, or they would read poetry, or he would, he would, in, he would uh, give the children, you know, spelling tests. Uh, and so, you know, he was very serious about education. And in this case, he sort of put his money where his mouth was and met he, he meant for his own children and for everybody else's as well. So again, it's an idealistic view, uh, but I, you know, that's one of those areas where I think maybe an idealistic view is not a bad thing. Certainly not. Um, so I guess it's unavoidable because this was the question of civil service reform was the issue that dominated much of political discourse for the next two or three decades. So I, I was a little bit uh, surprised when you mentioned in your book that it was not something that uh, Garfield had really thought a lot about until he started being mobbed in the White House and had to deal with Senator Conkling. Uh, why is that? Why, why, did, why was this an issue? I mean, after all, at the very least under Grant and certainly during the convention, this was, this was the big thing. Grant was being put forward. Grant himself, not necessarily, but the people backing him they all wanted the spoils. So how is it that Garfield didn't pay attention to him? It was a, you said yourself, he was a smart guy. He was a astute guy. He tried to keep his finger on the pulse of the nation. So why, why the relative indifference? Well, I think, I think there was some indifference because Garfield had used the patronage system, just like everybody, almost everybody else had. He had, um, you know, he had appointed people to jobs, uh, you know, here in, uh, in his congressional district. Um, in fact, there was at one point, I don't remember, it was sometime while Grant was president, I think. Um, uh, but the, the exact year is escaping me at the moment. Gar Garfield uh, and this he talks about this in his diary or maybe one of his letters where he he talks about um, a time when he was trying to appoint someone to a, a postmaster job, I think it was. And, and Grant actually stepped in and gave the job to somebody else. And so Garfield was a little, you know, kind of ticked off about, about that. Um, but, you know, Garfield, um, Garfield, yeah, I think Garfield was kind of, oh, yeah, you know, it's probably, I think he was somewhat indifferent to the whole thing. Um, yeah, maybe it's not a bad idea for people to be qualified, but it just wasn't an issue. At least it doesn't seem to me it wasn't an issue that was, you know, at the top of his list of things he was really spending a lot of time thinking about. Now, civil service reform was uh, a point of contention between stalwarts and half-breeds in 1880 when, when Garfield ended up running for president. But I think even more so than that, the point of contention between those two factions was the stalwarts wanted Grant to run again and the half-breeds did not. And the, the idea of civil service reform was something that almost came out of the anti-Grant movement uh, in 1880. Grant, of course, you know, had been president for two terms. 
left uh, and was was happy to kind of shake off the presidency when he was done. And he and his wife went on this big world tour and they observed from afar and were kind of a little concerned about some of the th- the more moderate approach to things like civil rights that, that President Hayes was taking. Uh, and a lot of people who had been very powerful under Grant, like Roscoe Conkling and others, were, you know, n- maybe felt like they were losing some influence under the Hayes administration and decided that the best way they could recoup some of this power was to bring Grant back because they had all done very well under Grant. Uh, and they really liked the patronage system because it gave them a way to build their own base of power. Uh, it's a very powerful thing to to be able to give people jobs and say, you know, even though you maybe have no no experience, no qualifications, no reason at all for me to think you're going to be a really good postmaster or consul or or you know whatever the job is, you know, customs agent. Um, I'm going to give you this job because you're loyal to the Republican Party. You're willing to you know donate a portion of your salary to the party once you're in in uh, in the job, uh, and 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 then this person is going to owe that elected official favors and deference. And that's very powerful. So people like Conkling really, really liked that. And so they were eager to keep that system in place. They were eager to see Grant come back. Half-breed Republicans, which obviously is a somewhat derisive name, um, are opposing the idea of a third term for Grant uh, and are also, some of them at least, willing to, to start looking at the idea of reforming the civil service, making it less about who do you know and you know who who can appoint you to a job you may not be qualified for and more about being qualified and passing a test and this kind of thing making people's loyalty to the good of the federal government and to the constitution and not to congressman so and so or senator senator such and such so um you know garfield again had used the patriot system certainly he had given people jobs um Garfield is more of a half-breed in 1880, really, because he opposes Grant running for a third term. Um, and so by just sort of guilt by association, I guess you would say, he kind of gets sucked into the, the civil service reform thing. And, you know, he makes some sort of passing references to it about, oh, yeah, you know, that, that, that will come, that will come. Um, it'll happen eventually, this kind of thing. But, but the thing that makes Grant, or Garfield rather, allied with the half-breed faction in 1880 is simply he doesn't want Grant to run again. Um, You know, you alluded to this earlier on about, you know, Grant was, as far as we know, and and certainly as historians have been doing more work lately, his reputation as a president is growing, and and I'm happy about that. Um, Certainly what he tried to do for civil rights and what he did do is is getting a lot more attention now, which is great. you know, the, the traditional view of Grant was always, even when I was growing up and going to, to school, you know, oh, you know, Grant, great general, terrible president, nothing but scandal for eight years. And and yeah, there was some of that. And and um, Grant, you know, again, is personally honest as far as we, we can tell, uh, but didn't always surround himself with the best people or people who had the country's interest in mind. Uh, they were uh, there were some folks that were, you know, lining their pockets and, and this kind of thing. But the other issue there is simply that no one had ever run for a third term. And, you know, the idea was always that if two terms was good enough for George Washington, the father of the country, 
who could have been elected president for life if he wanted to, if two terms was good enough for him to, to walk away and, and, you know, turn the government over peacefully to another, a new president, uh, that was good enough for anyone else. And so there was that view of, of Grant uh, standing for a third term that was really distasteful to a lot of people. So that's really where Garfield came into the half-breed faction. Uh, he was a leader of the anti-Grant forces at Chicago at the Republican convention. Uh, and then I think just sort of by association got a little more involved with civil service reform. But you, you mentioned this and you're 100% right. Once he becomes the presidential candidate and 20,000 people over the course of a few months descend on his home uh, and he runs the, you know, this first ever successful front porch presidential campaign. And then he wins the presidency and he becomes president elect and people start showing up at his house at all hours of the day and night, banging on the door, asking for jobs when he becomes president. Then once he goes to Washington and becomes president, just the hours every day that he has to give to people that are seeking jobs in his administration. That's the thing that, that really, you can see the changes happening in him in his diary where just every day, the frustration he feels about, he can't get any real work done because he has to spend hours every day talking to people who are asking for jobs. And isn't there a better way here? So that to me is, is something that, had, had Garfield lived, uh, may very well have been another great legacy of his, is civil service reform. It does come eventually under Chester A. Arthur, who, of course, succeeds Garfield. Um, but, um, but I think, you know, certainly it's, I think Garfield was, was getting more and more interested in civil service reform simply because he saw what a drain it was on the president and on people around the president who had to sit there for hours and hours and hours every day while thousands of people stood in line to get an audience with a, with the president himself or with somebody very close to the president to make their case for a job. So that's a very good summary. Uh, I thought we might end off uh, with a simple question. What do you think uh, is, is or are Garfield's lasting legacies for the average American who wants to understand this period better? What can they learn from it? What can they draw from uh, his life and work, and of course, his lost potential. Yeah, I, well, certainly the idea which we just talked about—the idea of, the, of civil service reform, this idea that 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 civil servants aren't loyal to any particular person or president; they are loyal to the Constitution. They work for the for the, for the public good. Um, that is something that you know started with the Pendleton Act in 1883, um, and. The, the assassination of Garfield is something that was used very skillfully by Republicans, by even President Arthur himself, uh, to say, this is why we need civil service reform. This will be a tribute to James Garfield's memory, because, again, the guy who shot Garfield, Charles Guiteau, um, clearly mentally unstable, um, but considered himself a, a loyal Republican and thought he had been very important to Garfield winning New York in the election and therefore deserved a job. And when he couldn't get that job, decided that the best way to deal with that disappointment was to murder the president of the United States and elevate the vice president who, in his mind, in Guiteau's mind, 
was from the right faction of the party because Chester A. Arthur was a dyed-in-the-wool stalwart Republican who owed his entire political career to Roscoe Conkling, who was the king of the patronage system in New York. Um, so I, I think, uh, and, 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 you know, so Republicans and Arthur too kind of sold, I, I kind of compare it to, um, uh, LBJ sort of telling the American people that passing the civil rights act of 1964 is a tribute to the memory of president Kennedy, who, you know, frankly was, uh, you know, pretty slow, <laughs> to move on civil rights as president because he was trying so hard not to alienate Southern Democrats. Um, but finally, you know, in the summer of eight, 1963 started to finally talk about some of these things. Um, you know, Kennedy is another one, of course, you know, died so young and, and, and just a lot of lost potential there. Who knows how great he, he might have been had he lived. We don't know. Um, so, you know, Garf, so I think the idea of civil service reform, um, helping people understand the government as it exists today that they know where, again, civil servants, and, I, and I'm one of those, you know, as my day job, um, who, you know, we work for the executive branch, whoever is, is president, whoever is, you know, congressmen and senators, you know, we are there all the time to, to, to do our jobs and to, to, for the, the benefit of the American people. And, um, and, and so that idea, I think, is something that, you know, certainly was around during Garfield's time, but really became a major issue because of the connection to civil service reform to the assassination of Garfield. Um, and, you know, I think that as we, you know, a lot of the issues that we're still talking about today with race, um, with racial justice, with social justice, regardless of where people stand on those issues and whether they're, you know, particularly interested in them or not. Um, you know, I, I think Garfield is somebody that people can look to for some things, not everything. Uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say he, he was not at all interested in women's suffrage. Um, that was not an issue that, that was even on his radar. He was invited at one point uh, to speak to a a women's suffrage convention in Washington, D.C. He was he received a letter from Elizabeth Cady Stanton asking him to speak. And he wrote her back and said, no, I think this is, you know, I don't I don't think suffrage will you know help woman improve her condition or something along those lines. So, you know, he's not he's not this, you know, this this hero that we need to put up on a pedestal and worship by any means. No, no one is. Um but I just think that, you know, at least in, on some issues and civil rights is one of those, he, he was on the right side of history. Um, you know, he he really believed in in those early Republican principles of equality of opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, kind of like just like Abraham Lincoln, you know, really encapsulated in the Gettysburg Address. Why are we fighting this war? We're fighting this war to keep the country together, but also to make, put the country back together better than we found it, uh, to remind us, to, to make us live up to who we say we are. When we say all men are created equal, what does that mean? Does that mean only white male property owners or does that mean everybody? Um, you know, I think, I think words like that really resonated with Garfield and I think he felt the same way. Um, again, he's not perfect by any means, and I, I don't mean to to make him out to be. But I think as we continue as a, as a country to to have these conversations about 
racial justice and social justice and, and see some of the things that are still going on in this country, you know, Garfield is somebody that we can at least look to as someone who in his time was on the right side of history and, and was willing to put himself out there and, and fight for the things that he thought was, he thought were important. Um, so again, he's not, you know, a perfect man or human by any means. None of us are. Um, but I think there, there's a lot to, to like about him. And I do think that he was exactly who the Republicans needed in 1880. Uh, I think he was the right guy, even though he's a compromise candidate, you know, he's not nominated until the 36th ballot. Um, he, he's, he's, he's somebody who's nominated purely because everybody likes him. Uh, even people that don't agree with him politically like him. He has never, he's not offensive to anyone. They think he can win. Um, you know, he is a true compromise candidate. Um, but I think that he's exactly the guy the Republicans needed then to remind them of who they were and what was important to them 25 or 30 years ago is still important to us today. And we need to remember that. And that's how we, we, you know, we move the country forward is staying true to who we are, staying true to the principles that, that this party was created on and really that this country was created on. So um, again, it's hard to say what, what might have happened in, in a four, full four years or full eight years of a Garfield presidency. Um, I'd like to think that the country would have benefited from that. But um, at this point, it's like I said, it's really, we can only speculate because he served so so, uh, so, so briefly, but, um, I do think that the country lost out on, on what could have been some really strong and, and positive leadership when he died. Very well said. And, uh, you've certainly convinced me, uh, as many questions as I've had, uh, Todd Arrington, thank you very much for coming on. It has been a, uh, wonderful, uh, conversation and I hope, uh, my listeners, uh, agree. Thank you. Appreciate Appreciate you having me on. Thank you. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Spotify, and you can support us on Patreon. Academic books are not cheap.